Matthew 8 had started where Jesus had just come down from the mountain. He'd been preaching, he'd been calling people to repentance, calling people with authority to change their life, to choose between the highway and his way. We ended off last Sabbath at the high cost of discipleship. Have you noticed that after you've given your life to Jesus, after you've been baptized, that it is often the time that Satan attacks? So as the crowd massed around Jesus, he gave the instruction to his disciples, let's get into the boat and go over to the other side. It is getting into the boat of discipleship that leads us into the storm of life. Because Satan is the one that doesn't want us to stay in that boat. But while Jesus is at our side, there's nothing to fear. This week, Matthew chapter 9. I hope that each one of you have taken the time during this week to study each chapter as we go through the book of Matthew. Because that then will help us not to have to tell the entire story, but for you to be able to follow as we just journey chapter by chapter through the gospel. Before we do that, though, let's pray. Gracious Father, it is my prayer this morning that as we open your word, that all the anxieties around us, all the noise, everything will quiet down so that we can tune in to what heaven would like to share with us. Father, I pray that with the opening of your word that the Holy Spirit will move amongst us, that we will hear your voice, and your direction for each one of us. And Father, as you touch your people's lives, I pray that you will not pass me by. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Friends, it is impossible to to share everything in Matthew chapter 9 in one sermon. It is multiple sermons in one chapter. So let's go to a key, two, two key verses that I would like to just focus on. It says, those who are well, ha- uh, sorry, this is Matthew chapter 9, verse 12 and 13. It says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Three things that I would like to highlight this morning in this message. The first one is healing. What does it mean when Jesus heals people? The second one is mercy. Mercy came running is the title of today's sermon. And the third one is the calling aspect. How does Jesus call people and prepare them for the calling that he's going to bring them? So that is going to be our three-pronged focus. So the first one is found there back in terms of healing. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, Jesus Christ did not just come to heal us physically. My late grandfather used to say, he was a a district surgeon in South Africa, he used to say that the human disease, 80% of it is found from the eyes upward. 
So I'd like to make a statement this morning that sickness is more than physical ailment. And I'd like to follow it up with some research that has been done. Research done by Harvard Mastery of Stress, Harvard University. They did a study amongst college-age students, and they followed them for 35 years later in their midlife years. And this is what they found. They found that 95% of subjects who used few positive words and rated their parents low in parental caring had diseases diagnosed in midlife years. We're talking about diseases like heart, lung, cancers, major health diseases. They continued in in their study and they discovered that when there was a cold relationship between father and a child, 83% chance that that child will develop major health problems. When there was a cold relationship between mother and the child in in their college age years, there was a 91% chance that that young person will develop major health problems. When there was a cold relationship between both father and mother, 100% chance of major health problems developing in their midlife years. It is staggering, isn't it? It is mind-blowing. Another university did some studies, John Hopkins University, and they found that the best predictor of who would get cancer decades later in their life, the predictor was the closeness of the father-son relationship. In this study, uh, the special focus was uh, in terms of the father and son relationship. But a phenomenal study was done by, back again to the Harvard Mastery of Stress study, they discovered that the effect of someone other than a parent caring for the subject, they found that the perception of love itself may turn out to be a core vital psychosocial spiritual buffer reducing the negative impact of stresses and pathogens, the disease-causing agents, and promoting immune function and healing. Our earliest relationships with our primary caregivers can have a phenomenal negative impact on our lives in terms of health. But the mere notion that someone out there loves me and cares for me can turn all of that around. Isn't that fantastic? The belief that maybe there is a God out there that unconditionally loves me and accepts me can actually form a buffer from those diseases being formed. Further research also says that if I do things contrary to my conscience, that it will impact my mental stability. In other words, depression, anxiety, and some of those other diseases can occur purely by contravening that which I already believe to to, to be right. So what do we do in society today? We we disregard the foundation of truth, the Word of God, hoping that our conscience would be soothed. Does it work? No, my friends, it doesn't. God also designed us in a very particular way for our bodies to function. And when we contravene when we break the health laws, we also will battle with major health diseases. And what is very interesting is that the diseases that our community are battling with today are by far diseases caused by breaking the health laws that God had given us. Very interesting. So opening up Matthew chapter 9, we immediately confronted 
with a group of ADRA workers that brings a paralytic to Jesus. ADRA workers, why do I say ADRA workers? It should have been Kingscliff church members that, 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 that is bringing a broken person to Jesus. It is the inspired pen that says that it was the lifestyle of this person, the lifestyle in sin that has brought him to this degraded state. And they bring him to the house where Jesus is busy teaching. But the house is already full. And no one is willing to give up their seat. I just wonder why. If there was a doctor in the house this morning and someone desperately needed a doctor that can help them, wouldn't it be natural for us to make way for that doctor or that person to be brought to the doctor? There was something in the psyche, in the spirituality of the people of, of that time that if you were battling a certain disease, it was because God was punishing you. You don't deserve the attention of this great healer, this man who is called Jesus, who is the Christ. But friends, he had friends that believed that this Jesus could help him. So it is in the book of Mark and John that they tell us that they ripped open the roof of that house, loaded him down to the feet of Jesus, the great healer God. How would he heal him? Listen to what Jesus says to this man. He says, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. My dear friends, that was, that was his greatest need. The greatest need of humanity today is to know that their sins are forgiven. The greatest need of humanity is not physical healing, but is mental healing, is emotional, is spiritual healing, is to be touched by him who alone can set us free from the shame and the guilt of sin. And, and if that was all that Jesus would have done, the inspired pen tells us that this man would have been carried home, released from the anxieties and, and the perplexities that he was battling with because his physical ailment was minor to the emotional battle that he was being battled with. As a Christian therapist, I regularly work with people and I recognize this point, the deep need that people have to know that they are forgiven. Amen. Just yesterday, Jared and I took communion to a shut-in individual. And as we came to the final conclusion of, of sharing communion, uh, the Lord's Supper with this individual, with tears in this person's eyes, they looked at me and said, is it possible that I could be good enough? How can I become good enough before God? What tears of joy flowed knowing that she was forgiven, that she was accepted, that she was embraced, that God in reality gives her eternal life. Oh, this Jesus. It was only after, after the scribes had pulled Jesus up on the issue of blasphemy that Jesus says what is easier to do to say, forgive your sins, or to say to this man, stand up and walk. And with that, the power, the recreative power of the creator God just flushes through his whole being, and he stands up, glorifying God, not only for sins forgiven, but also for a body that has been restored and had been healed. 
It is an inspired pen that continues to write. She says, there are today thousands suffering from physical disease who, like the paralytic, are longing for the message, thy sins are forgiven, the burden of sin which, uh, with its unrest and unsatisfying desire is the foundation of the maladies. They can find no relief until they come to the healer of the soul. The peace which he alone can impart will restore vigor to the mind and the health to the body. Oh, my friends, this morning, I cannot other than just stand still here for a few seconds to ask you a very personal question. How is it in your life? Are you still battling with an emotional disease because you just feel that you cannot come to him and receive forgiveness from him? It is my prayer that week after week, as Pastor David, Jarrett, and I preach, that each one of us will, will put ourselves into the pictures of each chapter and hear Jesus Amen. touch our lives. May it be that when we go home after a sermon, that we will never be the same again, that we would not have just heard a good message, but that we would have been touched by the healer that gives forgiveness and restoration. Let's move over to, to the second part in, in our story. Back to Matthew chapter 9, 12 and 13. It says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is directing these words to, to which group? It is the religious leaders of Israel that is gathering around him, the people that are guarding the law, making sure that the rituals are kept in well order. And he quotes to them out of Isaiah 6 verse 6. Remember, Isaiah 6 verse 6 is about the impenitence of Israel and, and Judah, and he says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offering. What is the knowledge of God? What is the knowledge of God? Oh, my friends, God took me, after I had completed my theological training, he took me into a war zone. South Africa had just embarked on their greatest, biggest military operation into Angola in direct conflict with the Russian and Cuban forces to destabilize South Africa, South African forces. And I, we were conscripted by law to be part of the National Defense Force. We were conscripted, and I was pushed in into that battle which was called Operation Ascari, the biggest operation into Angola, a place where I did not want to be. But one Friday night... As we waited in the trenches, a young man came to me and asked me to introduce him to Jesus Christ. But that night, my personal evangelism textbook, I could not read the text in my mind. Have you ever had those dreams where you have your notes in front of you but you just cannot read it? It happened not in a dream. It happened in a personal encounter by, while trying to introduce this man to Jesus Christ. I knew that in my personal evangelism textbook, on, on the left-hand side of what was, was the questions with all the biblical responses, but I just could not read it in my mind. And suddenly it dawned on me what I was trying to give this man was a doctrine that I was taught, not a relationship that I have entered into. 
What this young man was asking me was not to give him a Bible study on how to learn to know about God, but what he was asking me to give him a personal introduction to what should have been my Lord and my Savior. I had a a doctrine. I've been taught a doctrine, but not a relationship. And long after midnight that night, two young men laid down their assault rifles and surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. That night became the turning point in my life. That night became the reference point for my ministry because I know that if I hold to a doctrine... It means nothing. It is Jesus Christ alone and a relationship with him alone that matters. But friends, what does mercy say here? If I have an intimate knowledge in terms of a relationship with Jesus Christ, it will mean, therefore, that I will spend time with him. His heartbeat will become my heartbeat. His passions will become my passion. His desires would become my desires. And then the mercy of Jesus Christ will become the way that I will treat others. Right? It is in the well-known passage of Luke chapter 15, the lost chapter that talks about the lost things, that we read the story of the prodigal son, singular, while in reality there are two sons that are lost. The one represents those people out there that do not know God. The other one, the elder, the, the hopresbyteros in the Greek, refers to the religious people, the presbyter, the elder, as we really look at this passage, we see that the elder is in reality far more lost than the wilderness out there. He stays at home with his dad, but in actual fact, he's busy with his own thing throughout the week. It is only at night that he comes home to sleep. No different to many Christians. Out in the world the whole week, It is only on Sabbath that they come to sleep in church. If he was really with his father, he would have seen the drawn curtains. He would have seen his father's gazing eyes to the far land, the yearning in his father's eyes, the pain in his eyes, and he would have gone to the stables and saddled up a donkey or camel and would have left for the far land. Oh, God is yearning that his church would be healed, but furthermore, that his mercy will be found in them. Because if that is done, where will we be finding ourselves? We would be finding ourselves searching for the lost, looking for the lost. Look at the the flow of the chapter of of Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 2. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Where did he just come from? He had just been in the area, the region that the Jews had handed over to the devil and to the Romans and to the Gentiles. It was there that the most unexpected happened where the person that you would least expect responded to the grace and the mercy and and, and the love of God, transformed and were healed, were set free from the demonic spirit. Now Jesus crosses back over to the religious side, to his own people. And what happens? What do they do? They reject him. Let's look at it. We see Jesus showing mercy to a paralytic. He heals him, he forgives him, and all that describes the people that protect the law can see is what? 
What does Matthew 9 say? Blasphemy. By the way, their theology is right. Nothing wrong with their theology. If you are a, a mere human being and you say that you can forgive sins or that you are God, you are speaking blasphemy. They might have had it right in terms of the law. They had it wrong in terms of the person because the person who was standing in front of them was none other than God himself. God himself. So often, dear friends, we can be so right theologically, but relationally, we can be so wrong. Jesus shows mercy by calling a social outcast a tax collector. Matthew is sharing his own conversion experience, his own calling. He, he tells us that as Jesus comes to him, as he's busy with his lucrative business in tax collecting, Jesus walks past and he calls him. He says, follow me. And, and Matthew responds as a disciple. He leaves everything behind and follows Jesus. Where will it lead? To personal sacrifice. That is where discipleship often leads us, personal sacrifice. But how does the religious people respond to this? Do they praise God for a conversion that has taken place? Matthew immediately steps into discipleship, making disciple of other people because he gathers around him other tax collectors and sinners. And then it is the religious Pharisees that says in verse 11, and when they, the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What a privilege, privilege it was mine to preaching in Sydney. And uh, on a Sabbath afternoon after preaching in one of the churches in that conference, to go down to my office, which at that stage was in Cabramatta, the drug capital, to take off my tie and take off my jacket, and in a white shirt, black suit pants, dress shoes, to go and sit in the gutter next to a drug addict. It was quite interesting to see the looks that are shot your way. But when our center doors opened at 3 o'clock and I got up to meet my team, that drug addict would come with me out of their own choice. And they, they would say to me, you are not ashamed to be associated with me in the gutter of the street. There must be some worth and value in me which I want to live up to. Oh, my friends, mercy wants to come running to sinners. Even the disciples of John in verse 14, comes and asks the question, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not? Oh, my friends, how can you be fasting when the bridegroom is there with you? Jesus' response. How can it be that when mercy comes running towards you, that you can just stay with your rituals and, and, and your ritualistic worship system? Every time in the Gospels, when Jesus went to church, he disrupted the unity of the church. He disrupted the peace and the rituals. He made it new. How can you pour new wine into old wineskins, Matthew is saying, because it will burst the presence of this life giver, Jesus Christ, who just oozes with mercy, will disrupt our worship system. 
Have you felt it yet? As Jesus entered into your life? Matthew basically is saying, he says, look around you. Paralytics are healed. Sinners and tax collectors are converted and, and become disciples of Jesus. The dead is raised. The blind see. The mute speak. How can we maintain our normal ritualistic worship system? I wanted to say this morning to the worship leaders, I wish that my father was still alive. I would have liked to have invited him in this morning when the kids were running around in the church. (laughs) It is easy to shout and be joyous out on the playing field of rugby. But when we come into the presence of mercy, it suddenly has to be ritualistic. Our time is running out. Let's go over to the third one. The third one is mission or the calling and the preparation of the calling of people. Let's go back to, to our main text, Matthew chapter 9, verse 12 and 13. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How did Jesus do that? How did he prepare a harvest for who would respond? Because there at the end in verse 37, we read Jesus saying that the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are, laborers are few. And I don't want to go over to, to the next chapter because Pastor David Ashwick will be preaching on that, but in, in the chapter 10, we will see Jesus sending out his 12. How did he prepare the harvest? Do you know anything about spam? Do you know anything about spam? Spam is a computer terminology of information that you receive without having a relationship with a sender, right? What do you normally do with spam? You just delete it. Is it possible that we do spam evangelism? How would spam evangelism look like? One pastor was trying to to motivate his church for for outreach, so he said to his congregation after his Sabbath sermon, he said, look, um, after the meal, we'll go to the center of town where, where the hustle and bustle is taking place late Saturday afternoon, and I want to show you how spam evangelism works. And um, once they all had their seats in the shade, were able to to keep uh, their eye on him, he went over to the main crossing section and every female that crossed the street, he asked for a kiss. I see some frowns. What he was doing, he was asking for intimacy without a relationship. That is how spam works. Some women swore at him. Others slapped him. Others called him names. Others ran away from him. But the 86th lady gave him a kiss. What is the chances of me going home after church and asking my wife for a kiss? What's the chance of me, of me getting one? What if she is fast asleep during my sermon right now? Would I still get one? She's not, by the way. Would I still get a kiss? What makes the difference? Relationship. Relationship makes the difference. So keep that in mind. Look at what the inspired pens uh, writes. She says, Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. I stopped it there. Uh, we, we, we look at, at the, the rest of, of the, 
the passage shortly. But just follow me in your Bibles in verse 18 of Matthew, uh, verse 18. It says, While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. What is the scenario? The scenario is of a father that is distraught. He just got the message that his daughter has died. He knows only of one person to whom he can turn because this kind of miracle has not happened in Israel for many years. So he rushes over to Jesus, begs him to come. Lord, I know she's already dead. Will you come? What did Jesus do? Sorry, mate. The Levitical law says that by touching the dead, I, in actual fact, will become ceremonially unclean. What does Jesus do? Verse 19 says, So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. It is as they rush towards the house of this family where the mourners are already grieving the death of this little girl that we find verse 20 and suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. As Westerners, we miss the point. What's the deal? What's the deal? Why could she just not come up to Jesus and say, Lord, will you heal me, please? Blood flow, during the month that women would would have a blood flow, they were perceived, according to Leviticus, as being unclean. They, They could not serve. They could not touch. They could not be touched. They could not be loved. This woman, for 12 years consistently not only were battling with a physical disability that it was, it was causing by iron deficiency and all of that, but this woman were battling with the rejection that she experienced, not only from society, her own family, most probably her husband had by now already divorced her. No one ever would touch her. Wherever she sat, no one would sit. Whatever plate she ate out of, no one else would eat out of that plate. She was not allowed in the communal worship service. Because she was unclean. In psychology, we call it shame. The sense that I'm defective, I'm deficient, I'm flawed, I don't measure up, I'll never be good enough. And she felt that. But if only I could touch the hem of this master... By the way, what was hanging on the hem of Jesus' clothing was the bells with the blue tassels that resembled the law of God. Oh, my friends, when mercy comes running, the law and the grace of God becomes embodied in the same person, Jesus Christ. And she reaches out to touch the mercy of God suddenly she feels a healing power just move through her. And in her mind, she hopes that no one have noticed that she could slip away. And it is the other gospel writers that that tells us that Jesus stood still. Just, Just imagine the father that had just lost his daughter when Jesus asked the question, who touched me? Lord, does that really matter? My daughter is dead. Friends, when mercy came through Jesus Christ, he came rushing through the corridors of space and time for for this woman, but also for this girl. Yes, Jesus Christ is intentional with everything that he does. Who touched me? She's hoping to slip away. But Jesus' gaze focuses on her because mercy says, 
that you are infinitely valuable to heaven. The blind men are healed, the mute speak. Verse 35, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease amongst the people. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Do you know what the Greek word that is translated here as compassion really means? Do you know what it means? For your bowels to be moved. Last Sabbath at the end of the service, I shared a story of my little granddaughter in hospital. And many of you came out afterwards and said, what happened to your daughter? We're still wiping off our tears. Why? Because you were moved with compassion as I shared the story. Your, your, your inner parts started to move with compassion. This is how Jesus feels about humanity. And Jesus just could not help himself to not only go preaching, but he just kept on healing. Just imagine that day when Jesus will come on the clouds of heaven, when the trumpet will sound. And the voice of the life giver will, will wake those that are resting and those that are sick at that moment will be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, will change from, from mortal to immortality. What a great day that would be. Mercy, my friends. I come running. I need to finish. I'd like to finish off with a final story. Just go past that. Let's call her name Sally. Sally was brought into the Cabramatta Center, which was a drug intervention service of the church in the drug capital of Australia. Sally was brought in, found at the point where she had tried to commit suicide. She just did not want to live anymore. She was a young prostitute that... um, did prostitution to pay for her own drug habit. She did not mix up her, her, uh, her drugs like all the other drug users in a little sp- uh, teaspoon. She actually mixed it up in a soup ladle. She laced it with vodka to give it more power, more oomph. When Sally was brought in, my staff said to me, David, this one is a bit too difficult for us. You deal with her. I sat her down in my office, looked at her, wanted to know at what level I could come in uh, with her, and I said to her, I want to ask you a question. Do you believe in a higher power? She just exploded out of that chair. She said, what? Don't ever try to talk to me about God. He's no different to my father that abused me sexually from the age of seven. So I called my staff together, and I said, whenever Sally is in, don't ever talk about God. Just live God to Sally. Three months down the line, Sally came to my office door. The door was closed. She knocked. I waved her to come in. She walked in through my door. She looked at me. She said, David, I think that the face of God must have changed in my mind. We had not spoken any word about God, but every morning our team gathered for an hour devotion reflecting on how mercy, how Jesus dealt with people. I said to her, what do you mean? She said to me, I think that God must look like the people that work in the center. A few days later, I went on leave. I was still in town when the phone call came in. One of my staff phoned me and said, David, we know that you're still around. Would you mind coming to the center? Sally desperately wants to talk to you. Something big happened last night. I drove over to our center. Sally was waiting. 
And when I looked at Sally, I saw a new person. It is phenomenal when sinners met mercy, Jesus Christ. The transformation is visible. And I said to Sally, I said, Sally, what happened? She said, last night, you know that I've been trying to get off drugs. Last night, I, I, I crawled into my little living area. Uh, it's called a squat where, where it's a dil- d- dilapidated house where the other young ladies are doing the business on the one side. On the other side, others try to get some rest. She said, I crawled in there, tried to get some silence and just to commune with God and, and read the Bible that you people gave me. But the noise was so, so terrible and the smell was overbearing. So she said, I went out and I lay in, in the cool green grass was summer and I fell asleep. She said, around about midnight, I woke up with this beautiful singing, singing that I have never heard in my life before. She said that she believed it was angels singing from heaven. And she said, while I was just talking to God, laying there with my eyes closed, listening to the music and talking to God, I drifted off and slept, and I woke up this morning. The sun's still shining on my face. But I woke up this morning, I had no withdrawal symptoms by which now I should have been sick. We prayed for Sally. We prayed for victory. We prayed that the touch of God's Spirit will be maintained in her life, that she would be set free from her addiction and, and, and embrace Jesus Christ. When I returned from, um, from holiday, the news hit me that Sally was in prison. Sally was ordered, was given a decision, uh, to, to make a decision by court a number of years before to choose between methadone therapy or prison sentence. At that point, she had chosen methadone, which is a synthetic heroin. But now after receiving the healing from Jesus Christ, she made a decision so that she would never ever defile her body again with any chemical. She wanted to live her body for Jesus. So because she did not continue to receive a methadone dose on a daily basis, the methadone clinic reported back to the court. The court issued a warrant for her arrest. She was arrested, taken before the same magistrate. She stood before the magistrate. He said, two years before I gave you a decision, methadone or prison, you chose methadone. What do you plead? She said, your honor, I've met Jesus and he has set me free. I had made a promise that I will never again defile my body. With all due respect to the court, Your Honor, I choose prison. I went to see Sally in prison. This was enough to put her back. She must have seen the worry on my face. So so she reached her hand under a green prison jumper, and as her hand came forth, she held out the Bible that we had given her, With a broad smile on her face, she said, I am right here where God wants me to be. It is right here that I am working with other young women to teach them about the healing power of Jesus Christ that has set me free. Oh, my friends, a broken person was brought into our center a team of volunteers who were disciples of, disciples of Jesus became disciples sharing the mercy and the grace of Jesus. It impacted Sally's life. She became a disciple of Jesus and not only stayed a disciple, she became a discipler of others to bring them to Jesus. What about you today? Are you still battling with disease, physical, emotional, spiritual? Why don't you bring it this morning to Jesus to be healed by him? Oh, my friends, have you been touched by the mercy of Jesus Christ in your life?
Why not share as Jesus did that mercy with others, preparing the way for others to respond and also to become disciples of Jesus? That is my prayer for this church. That is my prayer for each one of you. That is my prayer for my own life as well. Let us pray together. Gracious Father, O Lord, becoming a disciple of you does not mean that the road forward would be smooth. It does mean that Satan will will full out try to attack us, try to destroy us, and often will make us so discouraged if we would look away from you that we will turn away from you. But as our eyes are focused upon you, my prayer is that we can bring our brokenness to you. Receive your mercy. But Father, my prayer is that that mercy will not just be something that we will relish in in for ourselves, but that we will carry it forward so that others, through sharing your mercy with them, will come to a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, this means that we as a congregation does not only have to hold on and receive knowledge in terms of what your word says, but we need your word to be alive within us so that Jesus, who is mercy, will be our personal God and our personal Savior. If there's anyone here in this audience, Father, that has not yet met you personally yet, I pray that you will lead them into that close, intimate union with you so they will be transformed, healed, and be different from this day forward. So, Father, we just lay ourselves in your hands, in your care, thanking you that as you look down upon us, that we can pray and ask that your face will shine over us, that you will protect us, and that you will seal us for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.